You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, March 16, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington. It's Fed Day. The FOMC has pulled the trigger, hiking the Fed funds rate 25 basis points. We're joined by someone who follows all of this very closely, Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. But first, let's take a quick look at what's happening in U.S. equity markets on this Fed Day. Dow Jones Industrial Average up one spot, five five percent, up to thirty four thousand sixty three here at the end of the day. S and P five hundred settling at the close of the session at around four thousand three hundred and fifty eight. That's up approximately two and one quarter percent. Nasdaq big winner on the day, up three point seven seven percent, closing out today's trading at thirteen thousand four hundred thirty six. Russell two thousand also up on the day, about two and a half percentage points closing out the day at 2019. And we could not have a better guest here on Fed Day than Darius Dale. We know you're watching it closely. Darius, welcome. Ash, what's up, man? It's great to be back. How you doing? It's great to have you back. By the way, Darius, you don't know this yet, but you are on the two-year anniversary show for Real Vision Daily Briefing. So not just Fed Day, an exciting day to have you here. I'm blessed to be here, man. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. Let's get right into it. <laughs> Let's do it, man. What's happening? What's going on? What's your take on this Fed day? Yeah, so Powell did a, a really remarkable job, in my opinion, of walking the tightrope that is appeasing uh, the sort of faction of the political spectrum and the factor of the investor spectrum that wants them to do um, get really serious on inflation and, and, and doing what it takes to uh, restore price stability, to borrow their phrase. But they also said enough about uh, in terms of talking up the economy um, and, and really sort of kind of uh, assuaging some of the concerns around growth in a near-term recession in order to sort of remove what I would consider to be, uh, at least temporarily, a hawkish right tail from policy. Um, and so, as you can see, obviously, asset markets are generally behaving positively as a response. If you look at where, for instance, the S&P was uh, prior to the, um, to the, to, to the, to the two, to prior to 2 p.m., prior to, prior to the statement, you know, we're up about 30, 40 base, or 30, 40 points, S&P points higher than that. Bitcoin's up about three or $400 higher than that. So there was a positive response in asset markets. And yeah. partially, partially, it has a lot less to do with what Powell said, but what Powell didn't say. What mm -hmm. Powell didn't say was that, hey, look, we're going to have to slow this economy and take and, and drive up the unemployment rate in order to get uh, price stability. Uh, what he said was, you know, we're and obviously they did this through their, their summary of economic projections as well. But what he said is, no, we're going to actually stick the landing here, which is very rare uh, for the Federal Reserve in any policy tightening cycle. All right, Darius, let me play uh, devil's advocate on this. Uh, here's the point. What did you expect him to say? We're going to get inflation down, but we're going to crash the economy. I mean, doesn't he have to sort of sound positive and say, look, we're going to work on the price stability side uh, of the ledger to try and control this inflation at 40-year highs? And by the way, we're going to aim for a soft landing. We don't want to impair labor markets. What were his other options? There, there is no other option, right? The Fed <laughs> is not allowed to forecast recession, but the yield curve can. Um, as we saw with the yield curve, continued to flatten uh, on the meeting. We, we had twos, tens, was about 30 basis points uh, prior yeah. to the statement and, and came in at 25 basis points at the cl close of his press conference. He had fives, thirties at 33 basis points at 28 basis points by the time Powell stopped speaking. So 
the market is looking forward ahead and, and you also have 30 year bond yields. Um, you know, so we had to start to see a little bit of a divergence between, you know, the twos, fives, tens, uh, twos, fives, sevens, and tens relative to 30s. 30s actually down uh, two basis points relative to where they were prior to the statement. So the market is looking ahead and, and sort of taking Powell's word for it in pockets of the market. But right, right now, as it relates to risk assets, and this is something we were definitely going to have to unpack, you know, we're heading into OPEX on Friday. Um, and, and OPEX, typically what happens in OPEX is that Explain what OPEX is for those who don't oh, know. Sorry. Yeah, let me uh, take a step back. We're heading into options expiry on Friday, particularly for stocks and indices like the S&P 500. Um, and as a function of the sort of all the kind of in the money puts uh, that are sort of about to expire, dealers are starting to pull back on those hedges. So when you buy a put on the S&P 500 as an investor, what happens is the dealer who sold you that put has to turn around and delta hedge that exposure by shorting the underlying. Well, as we get closer and closer in OPEX, they can reverse those hedges because um, obviously theta and things of that nature and, and also about the decline and volatility itself are all dynamics and factors that are creating, you know, sort of this sort of positive lift into the market. And so what's likely to happen and, and so what's likely to happen from here is that in the absence of anything really negative happening out of Russia and Ukraine, the markets are probably likely to trade positively into and through OPEX. The issue is what happens next week when we're, we'll be in a situation whereby 30% or thereabouts, somewhere around a third, according to Spot Gamma, of all the sort of put exposure out there is likely to expire. Um, all, all the gamma put exposure is likely to expire on Friday. And so investors will be kind of left with this really awkward choice, which is, did Powell say enough to not spook me into to not you know rushing to put those hedges back on? Or is there enough of a sort of negative macro market environment out there that investors will have to sort of you know, reach for more protection, and, and we would tend to we we would tend to believe that the latter is more favorable. Latter is more probable. Right. By the way, for those who didn't follow all of that, Darius is talking here about the options positioning, how dealers basically have to gamma and delta hedge their books to come out flat so that they're not picking up additional risk exposure to these markets. And that can uh, impact and cause some mechanical changes uh, in terms of price action. Is that roughly right, Darius? 100%. 100%. Yeah, we're in this window of time where you know the decline in volatility. In fact, uh, Brian, if you don't mind putting this chart up, uh, we have a chart called crowding versus dispersion. And the left chart is the one I'm speaking to specifically. Or we're tracking, you know, sort of deviations in uh, skew relative to, to, to uh, the, the volatility risk premium across certain assets. And, you know, one thing we call out is that, you know, upon refreshing that analysis, um, you know, during Paul's press conference, it's pretty clear that equities and risk assets in particular are running out of some of this the sort of juice that's sort of supplied by some of these supportive flows. Um, if you look at U.S. equities, we have about uh, 30 or 40 U.S. equity ETFs in the sample on a median basis, the volatility risk premium there is at minus 11% in terms of how we calculate it. Um, and same thing with risk assets. We have about 30 to 40 or 40 to 50 risk assets in the sample uh, on a median basis. It's also minus 11%. And so what that means is that you don't have this sort of healthy degree of overvaluation and puts in, in volatility uh, in the volatility markets that could perpetuate you know, some very positive VANA uh, flows uh, beyond this sort of OPEX cycle. And so that means we need to start seeing fundamental improvement in order to put in a durable bottom in the market. And according to our analysis, we're not we're not there yet. So Vanna is D Vega D spot. Uh, this is the delta with regard to volatility. Yeah. I think that's right. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. The change in underlying or change in delta relative to changes in volatility. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, Darius, obviously a lot there uh, talking about the option side of this market and also the macro component, which you touched on earlier. You said something that was really important, and I wanted to double click on it. Brian, if we could take a look at the chart of the twos 10 spread uh, for a one year time horizon, I think this is a really interesting chart because it shows uh, the flattening that had already been in the curve. Uh, that's a chart going back to uh, March of 2021. And as you can see by looking at the screen, it's one that you could ski down. <laughs> ski. If you try to ski down that, you're gonna break something. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a double diamond. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, a absolute whatever the hardest ski. I think that a double diamond sounds sounds about right to me. I'm not much of a skier. <laughs> and then I wanted to jump back uh, actually and take a look at the one year chart. Excuse me, the one day chart off the one year chart because this shows a little bit of uh, just how quickly we saw the twos tens curve flattening. Take a look at that uh, there. Pretty significant, Darius. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no. Look, look. The economy's headed towards a below trend growth. That was our call at the beginning of the year. Or sorry, that was our call at the, in fall of last year. We, we could have we had the view that uh, consensus was still kind of out to lunch. And, and Brian, if you don't mind putting up the chart, you know this is one of the important charts. U.S. growth trend would be the chart, Brian, um, where we show you know sort of the trend in U.S. growth relative to consensus forecast for 22 and 23, and we continue to be. Uh, and while, and while Brian's putting that chart up, let me just connect the dots for our listeners uh, and our viewers. So this is basically the two tens curve forecasting uh, a decline in trend growth on GDP, uh, and that's what we're seeing here on this chart. Yeah, it's, it's forecasting a, 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 a negative economic outcome, either a recession yeah. or something, a slowdown that takes you to below trend from a growth perspective. The issue with that as it relates to risk assets and financial conditions on a prospective basis, going back to the chart, um, is that Bloomberg consensus, um, if you look at uh, for U.S. growth in particular, is calling for 3.6% real GDP growth in this in this year. That's 160 basis points north of our trend rate. And mind you, this is in a year where we're having a near record fiscal contraction and seven and a projected seven interest rate hikes and some quantitative tightening. So um, that, in our opinion, remains a big risk um, to the downside for investor uh, expectations and obviously financial markets, particularly risk assets. Um, last thing I'll say on all this is if you put up the chart, um, sort of economic versus market cycles, Brian, uh, where we show in the blue line the OECD composite leading index time series relative to the black line, which is the S&P 500 high beta, low beta ratio, and the red line is the Bitcoin to treasury bond ratio, you know, the world has been in a cyclical slowdown since going back to the second quarter of last year. Um, it would be pick your economy, but Europe sort of started slowing on a trending basis in terms of leading indicators. Um, in, in November, but most economies, this call it the middle of last year, have been decelerating. That deceleration is only going to accelerate, um, and our models have that pace of deceleration picking up to the downside, you know, kind of mid to late Q2. And so as long as we're decelerating, we're going to have a natural growth headwind to risk asset valuations, investor sentiment, positioning, and all those sort of dynamics that can actually perpetuate a durable bottom. Um, last thing I'll say on all this is that when we do the analysis, uh, whether you look at the business cycle, investor positioning, we can unpack any of this if, if something tickles your fancy, or valuations, you know, we get to a terminal downside or, or something that would be a, 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 something along the lines of a Fed put uh, in a range of 3171 on the S&P to about 3429. Uh, that's, a, that's a long ways down from here. 
Darius, it all tickles my fancy. I wish we had four <laughs> hours to unpack everything you just said there. But I'm curious about your calculation uh, of the Fed put relative to the price action on the S&P 500. I heard Jay Powell today at the press conference decline uh, very graciously to give a forecast on the S&P, uh, therefore uh, maybe playing the cards close to the vest in terms of signaling where we might see concern from the Fed and then theoretically, of course, potential intervention. Well, he didn't, he didn't play him close to the vest at all. He let one slip, actually. He said financial conditions will become less supportive for various functions in the economy. I wrote that down. <laughs> so they, he's telling you the Fed is on the, on the track to tighten financial conditions. And so, um, you know, this has been our core thesis the whole time, right? And go right. back to... Um, well, but we knew, that from, we knew that from the dot plot. We knew that from the forecast. We knew that from the SEP. Uh, but he's declining to give you a particular dollar figure uh, in terms of valuation of S&P where it might become a particular concern. Well, our analysis puts it about minus six to minus thirteen percent lower than where uh, the B of A uh, fund manager survey had it at um, on Monday. They they had it at thirty six thirty six, and we're just we're a little bit below that. Um, we wouldn't, yeah, we would. I mean, I don't think there's any fair value in the stock market until you get to at least thirty six thirty six. But as you as I mentioned, you know, thirty two hundred to about thirty four hundred is probably our target zone. Darius, and that's why we're so glad to have you here today, because you are not afraid to make a call, and you're not going to play the cards close to the vest. Explain what that gap means between where we're trading right now, uh, looks like 4,357 uh, on the S&P 500, in terms of valuations and how you think about it and how you come to that uh, number uh, for the delta between where you see that as a point of concern. Yeah, so there's sort of uh, a myriad of analysis, and I'll be quick, there's trying to, the three main pillars of our analysis when you think about it from either the business cycle or positioning or valuations. You know, so we look at uh, the conference board labor differential index uh, as a proxy for the business cycle. That's the spread between um, the, the jobs uh, plentiful six months forward versus jobs not so plentiful. So that's usually a good proxy of, of uh, you know, peaks and troughs in the labor market. Um, and there have been, you know, eight cycle peaks since the early 1960s in this indicator with the median S&P 500 drawdown of 35%. So that's one positioning. If you look at household equity ownership relative to flow of funds, so proxy how much of your net worth is being contributed by your ownership of stocks, you know that number is at about thirty percent um, in the most recent uh, quarter, Q4. And there's been you know nineteen of those peaks since you know mid 1940s with a median drawdown of twenty two percent for the stock market. And then lastly, uh, probably the most bearish one is just valuations. And I don't need to tell anybody that stock market is still overvalued here. Um, if you look at on a real basis, earnings yield minus a headline CPI, we're at about three point four percent negative. Um, there have been six negative readings since the early 1960s with a median drawdown of minus 41%. And so you kind of marry those things up in terms of averages and you're right, right around down 30% peak to trough um, you know, from the highs in the S&P. Now, that's yeah. just one tenet of the analysis. The other tenet of the analysis is sort of looking at this from an analog perspective. We, we've thought you know, 2011, if you think about the secondary inflation impulse that we're seeing, um, 2018, uh, Q418, if you think about sort of the Fed being, you know, kind of on its path to tighten while the economy is starting to slow and having that kind of divergence really start to per, uh, perpetuate tighter financial conditions. And then lastly, if you think about uh, the, the, the unwinding of the dot-com bubble um, and the, the sort of overvaluation, the, the corollaries between equity ownership and overvaluation, those are the three most um, kind of closely knit analogs to our current situation, although none is a perfect analog. And when you marry those things together, you get somewhere around 30% um, on the downside for S&P. So we're looking at this from a variety of different angles, growth, inflation, policy, valuation, positioning, and we keep coming up to this minus 30% number in terms of peak to trough data. So I know that when you talk about minus 30%, that's a sobering phrase for people to hear. Uh, what are your catalysts? What are your time horizons? How do you see that unfolding? Great question. Great question. Best question ever. 
Um, so in terms of catalysts, because you need a catalyst, um, you know, markets just don't you know go down a lot or go up a lot by themselves. Usually, what's happening underneath the surface is the broader economic and market cycles are are, are, are you know sort of taking you there. Um, and so when you think about the catalyst for for a growth slowdown, you know, typically what you need to have happen um, in order to see sort of negative the outsized negative deviations in in risk assets is a is a sharper is a sharp deceleration in growth. In fact, you know, we back tested everything six ways to Sunday. Uh, here at 42 macro and and the reality is you do need to see what we call a minus two sigma deep uh, deceleration in growth so i.e that the speed of the change in growth to the downside is is, is right around on two sigma on an absolute basis relative to the trailing three-year trend we expect that those types of you know decelerations that that, that magnitude of change will start to it kind of uh, show up in the economy around mid to late q2 um, and that's kind of one catalyst there's another catalyst that we haven't spoken about which I think is equally important as it relates to investor sentiment, which is earnings. Um, if you think about S&P earnings, we you know we continue to make new highs in terms of next 12 month earnings estimates. You know haven't really seen much of a pullback despite what you know that we are all seeing in the yield curve, bond market, new lows for fives, thirties, almost new lows for twos, tens from a growth perspective. But if you look at earnings estimates, they haven't really moved that much. And earnings, if you look at it on a trailing 12 month basis, uh, S&P 500 operating margins at 16 percent. I mean, you pull that chart back as far as the data goes, and the previous cycle peaks are all at 14%. I mean, you could very easily have an earnings recession just to get back to the prior cycle peak, which probably is not the terminal destination. So um, there's a lot of headwinds from a medium to long-term perspective um, with respect to the equity market, but obviously from a short-term perspective, with the Fed just not spooking markets with Kyle's commentary or or the dot plot, you know, there's, there's a kind of a window for a relief rally here. Yeah, and by the way, that's uh, discounting any potential risks for a negative exogenous shock. Oh yeah, yeah. No, like yeah, we, the, the the I said this a couple weeks ago. Um, the negative exogenous shock of 2022, um, and it's obviously there's no way anybody has any sort of crystal ball on it. But it's it's a it's China starting to get aggressive with Taiwan. I mean, think about it. This is a as as good as an opportunity for China to sort of commit to some very aggressive policy on on the geopolitical front as ever. The U.S. and NATO's hands are tied with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, obviously, they're all, all the central banks' hands are tied with respect to inflation fighting and not being able to sort of um, protect asset markets in the event of, 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 of an adverse outcome on a China-Taiwan uh, aggression. Again, I have no clue if that's happening this year and happening in the year 2050, but certainly that the conditions are there for China to make a move if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, by the way, I wanted to come back to something that you said, obviously a lot to talk about, a lot to think about, particularly uh, with negative exogenous shocks from a China-Taiwan situation. That's kind of the ultimate black swan that's that's potentially hovering out there. Obviously, we hear uh, some buzz about it in policy circles, some rumors, but right now, nothing more than rumors to substantiate. But I wanted to ask you a question, and Darius, I'm not joking when I say this, man. I mean this seriously. Let's talk about the dot plot. Let's talk about the SEP, the summary of economic projections. Like, so 3.6% on the Fed funds rate in 2024, according to the dot plot. What, 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 if anything, does this mean? Like, what is the dot plot other than something that, like, is really good for guys like me who are financial news anchors to put up on screen and then, you know, with a, a, a deep, sonorous voice and tone things uh, that are probably never going to come to pass? Like, what, what's the point of even looking out to 2024? All it basically tells you is what the best case scenario uh, of uh, you know twelve individuals is? Well, it's not at this point. I would argue it's not even telling you that. It's it's kind of telling <laughs> you nonsense. So you know, let's 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 talk about the dot plot. So they took they took up their numbers. 
um, for 2022, we're the likely the median projections to end at 1.875. That's up from 0.875. 2023 median projections to end the year at 2.75. That's up from 1.625 in December. And then lastly, um, 2024 uh, in the year at 2.75. So no change uh, year over year from 23 to 24. Uh, and that number's up from 2.125 in December. The issue with that, in my opinion, with this whole sort of summary of economic projections, is that the longer run pr uh, projection for uh, the dot plot for the median Fed funds uh, estimate is 2.375. So they're telling you that they're going to be tighter than neutral in both 2023 and 2024, and you're not seeing that it reflected at all in their unemployment rate forecast. I mean, you look at it in 2023, they're unchanged at 3.5%. 2024 went up a mere 10 basis, a, a gigantic 10 basis point rise in 2024 to 3.6, which, oh, by the way, both those numbers, 3.5 and 3.6, are lower than their longer run in, uh, in unemployment rate projections at 4%. So we're still saying, hey, look, we're going to take monetary policy above neutral or tighter than neutral, and we're not going to get a, a sort of a, a drawdown in the labor market um, that takes it below sort of trend or below where kind of the um, natural uh, inflation, naturally unemployment, uh, inflation accelerating unemployment rate will, will get us to. So I think there's some hmm <laughs> moments, if you will, if you study the stop plot, but the reality is, Markets kind of care about this stuff. What markets care about is this sort of medium-term kind of policy dynamic. Are rates going to go up faster than what's currently priced in over the medium term? Is the balance sheet going to expand or contract faster than what's going to uh, what's kind of priced in over the medium term? And the reality is, Powell just affirmed it on the rate side, on the pile, on the balance sheet side, they punt it. But the reality is, I think if he said enough, and I'll quote him: "The American economy is very strong and well conditioned to handle tighter monetary policy." We will take the necessary steps to make sure inflation does not become entrenched. And so all that means to me, if you're from, if you're an investor, and I'll slow down when I say this, is that the Fed won't stop tightening until something breaks. That's as clear as day. And so, so it's your job as an investor to try to anticipate when that thing will break. And if you don't have an ability to anticipate when that thing will break, you can subscribe to services like mine, or you can just take your ball and go home. I think either is a reasonable choice. Yeah. Darius, I'm very impressed with that answer about the dot plot for three reasons. Number one, first and foremost, because you managed to give the 50,000-foot big picture of everything that was happening and your takeaway from it, which is really the key to take all of this data, process it, and give a clear, simple analysis. Number two, masterful explanation of all of the underlying mechanics. But number three, the thing I'm most impressed by, uh, I said the dot plot means almost nothing, and you said, no, it means less. <laughs> it means less, man. Now the markets are going to trade on. Look, the, if you look at overnight index swap, uh, uh, overnight index uh, swaps forwards, or if you look at um, uh, euro dollar futures, there's already an inversion in the curve, and that inversion didn't go away. Um, if you look at it on a, on a kind of 18 to 24 month out basis, so the markets are already pricing in a Fed that is going to slow the economy. The Fed's not going to tell you that in the dot plot. They can't, right? Because they'll spook markets and cause yeah. a sell off. In the same way that today, I think that by him talking up the economy, in the context of having so much put exposure, so much in the money put exposure, near-term delta expiring put exposure that will catalyze a big vicious rally in the absence of you know an incremental demand for puts. That's exactly what's happening. But the reality is he didn't say or do anything that was fundamentally bullish today. He just didn't say anything or do anything that was more fundamentally bearish than what the market was already anticipating. And that's how yeah. you get this sort of uh, relief rally. Hey, listen, I want to touch on something that uh, we haven't talked about and in the press conference uh, was touched on very little, which is what's happening with the Fed 
balance sheet. Uh, what's your interpretation of what this is going to look like in terms of uh, the unwind of the balance sheet? Is it going to be a passive roll-off? Is it going to be active selling? What are your thoughts on it? How are you thinking about it? And what are you looking to for insight? Yeah, so uh, so obviously we're we're going to get an update in the Fed's next meeting um, in, in late May. So we'll we'll definitely get the update there um, in terms of uh, or sorry, not not late May, early May. Uh, we'll get the update there in terms of understanding. Well, okay, what what's the plan? He did kind of allude to this really quickly and said uh, balance sheet runoff will be faster than last time. Uh, but as you know me, Ash, we've been talking about this for for nearly a year now. It's not just about the Fed's balance sheet. If you're thinking about the liquidity uh, cycle with respect to uh, a policy and, and asset markets. It's the, the Treasury general account is equally important and, and at times in terms of uh, directing the overall sort of, or changing the overall direction and magnitude of the liquidity revision. So that's how we calculated Fed balance sheet minus Treasury general account. Treasury general account balance goes up, Fed balance sheet goes down. We're draining liquidity in both instances. Fed balance sheet goes up, Treasury general account balance goes uh, down, or, go, or sort of goes up, or sorry, goes down, we're adding liquidity in both instances. And so, you know, when we look at that analysis, there's kind of a couple things, right? If the treasury issues a bunch of bills and, and provisions itself, you know, there's a, there's a, there's about 1.5, $1.6 trillion in, sitting in overnight repo that's looking for a home. And, and that could actually make this sort of quantitative tightening process really sort of, I wouldn't say painless because, you know, this, the, the net liquidity line going down is not, not ever painless, but it'll be make it more painless than it could be. However, if Yellen's not on board or, if the Treasury's uh, content to doing more and to aiding the Fed's fight on inflation, because again, we're all assuming as kind of folks who've been trapped in this post-GFC net liquidity dynamic, um, you know, since going back to, you know, again, post-GFC, we assume that the all the policymakers care about is growth and, and, and asset markets. I would argue that's very different now. The inflation, sticky CPI at 6.5% on an annualized basis, median CPI at 6.5% on an annualized basis, those numbers are pretty close to, all the, the, the latter is pretty close to an all-time high. And the, Latin, the former is, you know, basically at a 30, 40 year high. So the, I think the inflation fight is much more serious. And they just don't want to say it's, they just don't want to do it all today. And, and so going back to your point on the, on the balance sheet is we don't know. Right. The answer is we don't know. But I th do believe it's going, to, um, it's going to be more painful than I think investors have realized. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let me ask you this. Uh, the, the last thing that I really wanted to talk about was there's the, there's been some criticism today uh, from various voices out there, uh, economists, particularly people who have experience uh, on the labor economic side. Danny Blanchfauer, professor at Dartmouth University, probably uh, the person who seems to have uh, been most passionate in his summation of this analysis, uh, where he's talking very bearishly about the risk to labor markets. In a certain sense, Darius, taking a, a bit of an opposite side uh, of the call from you, saying effectively, yes, there are challenges on both sides uh, of the dual mandate. But the, in his view, uh, the damage that's going to be sustained by labor markets, although they're very tight right now, uh, I think 1.7 job openings for every uh, for every single unemployed individual in the United States. Uh, Danny Blanchfauer's concerns, some other labor economists' concerns, uh, is that when rates begin to rise, we are going to see a material impact uh, on the labor markets from that rise. Uh, so two questions to you, Darius. First, if you could, 
I know you don't agree with it. I know it's not your perspective on this, but summarize that case for us. Uh, and then to give us your opinion on how you feel about it. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't disagree with it. Um, I, I probably would disagree with the timing. It's going right. to take some time for the effect of tightening that we've already realized just as a function of, you know, Ford's curves pricing, then, you know, uh, changes to the, as a function of Ford guidance. We've already seen a backup in credit spreads and, 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 and bond yield and high yield bond pricing. So we've seen some tightening hit the economy already. Financial conditions are well off the lows of financial conditions indices. They're well off the lows. The, the issue is that we're, there's a lot more tightening ahead of us. And so we're going to start to see the economy slow down. That's the first order effect, right? We're going to see the economy start to slow down again. Our view on that is kind of mid to late Q2 is where you're going to start to see that pace of deterioration pick up. Um, and then by the end of the year, early part of next year, when we're tracking, you know, with inventories or likely to have an inventory overhang at that point, you're likely to have a lot more tightening under the belt of the economy at that point. You could actually start to see a backup in the unemployment rate. Um, one thing I'll show you, um, you know, if you, uh, Brian, if you put up the chart, unemployment versus Fed funds, and this is something I think is kind of critically lost. I think investors are, are kind of get it through the lens of the yield curve. But when you look at sort of where the unemployment rate is, relative to kind of, you know, the beginning of any Fed funds tightening, tightening, tightening cycle, you know, that what that chart is, is showing you that I think the blue line is the unemployment rate. Um, and I think the red line is the Fed funds rate. Those mm -hmm. black dotted lines are the beginning of every uh, Fed uh, monetary policy tightening cycle, you know, since going back as far as we can get the data. This is the lowest the unemployment rate has ever been prior to liftoff huh. or, you know, at, at, at the onset of liftoff. And so, to me, I think that's meaning just, at the I'm, onset of the onset of tightening. At the onset of the tightening cycle. And so right. to me, I think that what the key takeaway of, of that that analysis is the probability of the Fed kind of making a mistake or breaking something like they traditionally always do in right. a policy tightening cycle is as high as it's ever been. You know, we don't have like an organic growth impulse ahead of us for the economy to absorb all this tightening and in stride. You know, we are way past the peak from a uh, leading indicator standpoint. Um, in terms of the cyclical slowdown that we're already realizing, and this tightening is only going to add fuel to that fire. Um, I'm starting to feel a little optimistic, Darius, until you laid that chart on me, man. Now on bonds. <laughs> 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 on curve flattening, yeah, sure. Depends <laughs> on where you're long. Yeah. Uh, so listen, we've covered a lot of ground here in the first uh, 30 minutes, uh, but I want to get some of the questions because we have a lot of them. They're coming in fast and thick. Uh, First question, this comes to us from Gren. Uh, Darius, any changes uh, to your inflation projection given the situation in Russia and Ukraine? No, I mean, so our, our, we have two models that we use to, to forecast inflation. Uh, one is our stationary mean reversion model. That model's been pretty much in line with the Fed forecast um, and Bloomberg consensus forecast over the last month or so. Um, our, our, our downcast model it continues to pick up, you know, a secondary inflation impulse. If you look at it, you know, we're, we're we're in the disinflation camp, if you look at it, you know, particularly on a year-over-year -year basis. The problem is that disinflation may not come with the dissipation and inflation and momentum. You know, if you, and so, you know, as I keep saying, then year-over-year -year numbers don't mean anything. That what matters to inflation and it matters to the bond market right now and ultimately it matters to the Fed are the sequentials. And, you know, if headline CPI at 10% on a seasonally adjusted basis, that's no bueno. You know, you got, again, I mentioned median CPI and sticky CPI. Trim mean CPI, core PCE inflation at 6.7% on a SAR basis. That's the highest print we've seen since July 82. Like we're still building inflation momentum to the upside. You know, so it's it, it, regardless if those year over year numbers come down as a function of the base effects, if the sequential momentum numbers don't come down fast enough, you're going to have a Fed that is going to be six months from now still talking about tightening policy 
even though financial conditions are considerably tighter. And that, in our opinion, is the big risk to markets. Yeah. Derek, I'm seeing a bunch of questions from several different people uh, here asking about your take on precious metals. What are your thoughts there, particularly gold? Yeah, no, gold's got a great opportunity here ahead of it. I mean, obviously, you know, in the near term, it's kind of dealing with, you know, some of these sort of uh, margin requirement dynamics at some of the, uh, the brokers. And obviously, you know, there's some sort of speculation that uh, some of the Russian oligarchs and folks who've had their assets frozen are probably taking the gold to secure liquidity. But longer term, I mean, the, the medium term and longer term outlook for gold is as bad as bullish as I've ever seen, uh, certainly in my, in my 13 year career. Um, on the medium term side, it's very likely that real interest rates hit a lower high here. Uh, the long term bond yields, real, real, you know, 10 year tip shield, 30 year tip shield, et cetera. Those things will hit a lower high and start to come down as a function of the deteriorating growth outlook. Mind you, this is half the people listening right now, and certainly more than half of Wall Street believes the economy is fine and the economy is doing well. 7% GDP last quarter. You know, we had ro robust consumer spending in January. They believe the economy is fine. But guess what? The economy is not going to be fine six months from now, nine months from now, 12 months from now. And so real interest rates are going to likely follow that path of the economy lower, and that's likely to be positive for gold medium term. And then obviously longer term, the shenanigans that the U.S. and, and, and NATO are doing with other countries' central bank uh, foreign exchange reserves is, is a, one, it's a disaster because it undermines credibility and confidence in the dollar, you know, sort of reserve system. But it ultimately, it's sort of it, where that credibility and confidence is being lost for the dollar, it's being gained in other reserve assets like gold. So very bullish on gold. Yeah, well said. Uh, by the way, talking of gold, Tony Gold has just dinged me in the comments. It is, in fact, Dartmouth College and not Dartmouth University, as I said. Um, Switching gears here uh, to crude, a question coming through. Actually, I want to ask that question sort of more broadly, what your thoughts are on the whipsawing that we've seen in crude. But the question uh, from one of our viewers, this is from Ross uh, from The Exchange, uh, and it's a question that I've actually been wondering about myself. If Saudis start pricing their crude uh, in UN, Chinese UN, uh, is this an indicator that the Saudis are moving closer to China and away from the United States? And if so, how will it impact U.S. crude pricing? So kind of a triple barrel uh, question there. I think it's ironically bullish. I mean, the less people need to use the dollar, the less demand there is for dollars globally. And the less demand there is for dollars globally, all things be equal with respect to dollar supply. And I would argue it's not going to be equal to removing dollar supply from the system, that you should have a lower dollar, um, you know, if, if the plan falls in, in, a, in a supply strain. So if, if, to me, I think the, the, the probability that we see higher crude as a function of that, purely as a function of a weaker dollar, is higher. Now, that's not the only thing driving global currency markets. So let's, let's be very clear about this. Um, I think we sort of get myopically focused at times on, you know, interest rate spreads or, you know, petrol this or petrol that or all these different factors. Man, there's me. I mean, goodbye, Joe. I'm doing this for a while now. There's a million factors that impact currencies and they all have different sort of coefficients at different intervals. Yeah. Um, let me ask a question here. Uh, this one actually comes to us from Ralph Humphrey, but also something that we were talking about a little bit off camera, uh, which was what's happening in China. You spoke about China vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the situation geopolitically in Taiwan. This question is uh, from Ralph Humphrey is about what's Darius's view uh, of China and the different equity sectors within China for the next few months? And I would actually point to the uh, earlier point that you made uh, about how we are seeing some intervention uh, in equity markets in China right now. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's a, there's a move towards intervening. Uh, so overnight, uh, we had uh, Vice Premier Li He, who's basically China's kind of top economic person, if you will, be the chief of the White House Council on Economics, if you will, I guess that would be the equ equivalent person. Effectively came out, they had the meeting, uh, it's kind of an emergency meeting, um, and he effectively came out and said everything you need to say to arrest sort of the volatility in, in Chinese financial markets. You know, it's effectively, look, we're gonna, we need growth uh, positive uh, policies, we need to get more regulatory relief, 
um, particularly where, you know, in the areas where macroprudential policy has been mostly focused, real estate obviously being the, the, the primary uh, one. The issue is, is that, you know, we have not seen the same sort of gung-ho attitude coming out of the PBOC. They didn't necessarily confirm those comments. And, you know, when you look at things like, um, you know, actually one more chart for you guys, um, Brian, if you put up the chart, China liquidity cycles, um, you know, one thing that's sort of really important for me to watch in China is three-month Shibor. And the reason we look at three-month Shibor is because, you know, 80, 85% of all private non-financial sector credit in China is on bank balance sheet. And so if you watch Shibor, you can be effectively watching all of, of monetary policy, if you will, or at least, you know, 85% of thereabouts. And so what typically happens, you know, in these easing cycles in China, where the, you know, the PBOC is using its medium-term lending, or open market operations, or reserve requirement ratio uh, cuts, you typically see, you know, kind of two to 300 basis point declines in three-month Shibor prior to a sustained impulse, positive impulse in the Chinese credit cycle, which itself leads the GDP cycle by one to two quarters. We haven't seen anything yet. And so this kind of goes into question, like maybe the commentary, the rhetorical shift in, in monetary policy or in just policy in general in China puts a floor in Chinese assets for now. It puts a floor in Chinese growth expectations. But are you really going to get this sort of big bang easing that a lot that we all got used to going back to 2016, 2011, 2009, 2008, 2009? It's certainly not in the cards. We certainly don't see it in the data yet. And so that stuff's still ahead of us if that's going to be a catalyst for markets. Yeah, one more thing that I wanted to hit before we go, because I think it's an important one. This clip uh, from Pro Macro Insider Talks, March 2022. Uh, this is Ralph Powell and Julian Brigden, hosted by Harry Melandri, uh, live uh, as of yesterday on the Real Vision Pro tier, uh, talking about rates and inflation. Let's take a look at the clip, because it really is, in many ways, uh, a summary of everything we've been talking about on this show. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of still thinking that the curve hasn't inverted. Mm -hmm. The monetary conditions have tightened. Growth is about to slow. The Fed are more likely to do 25 basis points, maybe another 25. And then, oh, shit, we better wait and see because the ISM is trading at 51 or 50. Uh, sorry, or 52. Mm -hmm. And if commodity prices remain high, I think there's going to mm -hmm. be direct handouts. Um, whether it's tax cuts on commodities or whether it's money in the pockets in Europe to households to offset it. Right. And that's the, I was going to say, that's the cost coming, of war. it looks like it's coming in Europe. It looks yeah. like it's coming this in Europe. This is the cost of war. So, so there is another flip side of this, which is that the central banks have to stop. They understand that this is monetary tightening. They have to get money into people's hands. And all of this starts getting resolved with the market sniffing out potentially an easing, i.e. the end of a cycle or a, or a longer pause in a cycle. Because I don't buy the argument that any amount of rate rises will stop supply-side inflation or inflation by this. And all I know is everybody I know, ordinary people, get texts from friends of mine, fucking hell, I'm my car you know, how much it cost me to fill up my car today or their heat their homes, you know, that's a meaningful, massive reduction in demand. Right. So we need to be careful. The question is, is do we go into a full larger recession or not, in which case the stock market goes lower unless the central bank balance sheet comes in? It's hard to see them use the balance sheet in the normal way. 
because of the murkiness of what's going on. So obviously some bearish sentiments there. But for me, uh, this is the part of the quote that I think is most relevant. This idea that, quote, I don't buy the argument that any amount of rate rises will stop supply side inflation. This is something that we see mirrored in the comments. Uh, I'm always uh, you know, interested when I see people commenting, hey, what are you guys talking about, man? Things are terrible out there. I go to the supermarket. Uh, it cost me 10% as much as it did uh, last year. It's, I'm getting killed at the pump. There's definitely a feeling uh, among many workers in the country right now that there is this real challenge with uh, inflation and, you know, and mirrored by some professionals who worry about whether or not the Fed can get it under control. What are your thoughts on that more generally? Yeah, my thoughts are the same. Paul addressed this very specifically, in my opinion. This is one of the more hawkish comments of the day when he was talking about the sort of uh, the ratio of total job openings um, relative to uh, total unemployed workers being at 1.7. That's obviously he said, quote, that's very, very tight. It's tight to an unhealthy level. And so he followed that up by saying we like to slow demand yeah. Uh, so that it's better aligned with supply. And so it's, it's, it's no longer about sort of, uh, I think the last year's transitory debate, right, was the Fed saying it's transitory, it's supply, it's supply, it's supply. 2022 is the year where the Fed acknowledges the fact that supply has been reduced, supply curve has been inwardly shifted to the left as a function of pandemic, function of the war, function of, you know, the, you know just a lot of, you know, reduction in total labor supply, both domestically and globally. And so yeah. now the Fed has acknowledged that and saying, hey, look, there's a level of demand that is way too high relative to this sort of new realization, this new normal of supply uh, from the perspective of the economy. And so they have to do what they have to do in terms of tightening financial conditions to get that better in line. And that's not a pretty thing for markets. Darius, we're almost totally out of time, but real quick, 30 seconds, sum up, key takeaways, final points. Yeah, I'll be quick. Um, you know, so near to, I'll do uh, short term, medium term, long term, short term, next few weeks. Um, it's very likely if, if, if you get any sort of ceasefire or any sort of positive developments out of Russia and Ukraine, um, there's likely to be a sustained relief rally. Um, we're losing a lot of uh, uh, gamma exposure from the perspective of this Friday's ops and expiry. However, if you don't get that stuff where you go back to, you know, this is why the relief rallies are likely to be shorter in the absence of that, that, that headline uh, risk, because the fundamental outlook continues to deteriorate. Every day we go forward in time from a medium and longer term perspective, we're talking about an economy that's growing slower, and slower in policy that's getting tighter and tighter. And those two dynamics in the context of where positioning and valuations are, are you know, they're just at odds. And so ultimately that 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 sort of um that process needs to be reconciled. Darius, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, but especially on Fed Day. Great job here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ash. Appreciate you. Thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Maggie Lake will be here again tomorrow with Joseph Wang. Before we wrap, two quick notes. First, at 6.30 p.m. tonight, uh, we will be doing another Real Vision Twitter Spaces, a Twitter Spaces at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will continue the conversation. Second, I mentioned at the top of the show, I thank Darius for being our two-year anniversary guest, but I wanted to thank uh, everyone who's worked on this show. There are a lot of people who work on this show to give you uh, the news that we get here today, the analysis that we get here uh, every day on this show. And especially, I wanted to thank you, the audience, for watching us for the last two years. We very much appreciate it, and we look forward to joining you again in the future. Thanks for watching for the last two years. Thank you again. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.